This podcast was recorded live at RBC Waterpark Place. Good morning. Welcome to RBC Disruptors. I'm John Stackhouse. It's my pleasure to host our monthly conversation about disruption, innovation, and how technology is changing everything around us. Our guest today is Ray Reddy. Ray's the co-founder and CEO of Ritual, the mobile ordering app that uh, lets users discover, order, and uh, pick up coffee and lunch and much more. It's now in over 5,000 restaurants, 16, and that's probably grown in the last 24 hours, cities across North America, Europe, and Australia. By year's end, uh, Ritual will be in more than 40 North American cities and aims to uh, triple its restaurant count. Ray, congratulations on what you're building at Ritual, and thank you for joining us here at RBC Disruptors. I want to start, though, with a couple of snappers and just get a a sense of your own rituals or or, or habits. Favorite food to order? Um, In the winter, a lot of soups and wraps. Summer? Uh, Try to keep it lighter with salads. (laughs) (laughs) Biggest frustration you've got with uh, food pickup? Wasting time is is just a huge frustration, so lineups lineups annoy me. Last home-cooked meal for you? Made a a roast chicken a couple of days ago. Nice. Yeah. So there's a, there's a future in home cooking mm-hmm. still. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Talk a bit about those early days with getting Ritual going, because it's not just about launching an app and hoping people will use it. You have to work actively with restaurants. What was your thinking? Yeah, um, prior to Ritual, there had been a number of attempts to, on, on how to connect people with local businesses. So Groupon attempted to do that with a, with a deals angle. Uh, there had been um, a lot of different loyalty programs what we believed was the reason why most things had failed was in the software. It was um, what we call like coverage or density. So if you, for example, if you work in this building and we said, well, we have 5,000 restaurants um, on Ritual, that actually doesn't matter to you because most of you probably spend you know, all of your time and, and your dollars in the, in the water park place food court. And if there are seven restaurants there and we don't have, and we have one, that's just not compelling, right? Um, the product doesn't work well. If we have six or seven of them, then it actually doesn't matter whether we have 5,000 restaurants or not. The product is compelling for the people who work in this building, right? So I think a lot of other companies took a, a large numbers view of things, and, and big companies really struggle with this because it has to be national because they're, they're national or global companies. Um, and this is actually one of the benefits we had of, of being a startup and being small was it was okay for us to, to focus on a neighborhood or a building. And that's actually how we started. We, uh, we, we proved this by making it work in one single building um, at 488 Wellington for 200 people with 15 restaurants around them. And we said, if we can make it work for, for this 200 people, then we can, we can scale that, right? Building by building, neighborhood by neighborhood. And it seems time-consuming and that it would take forever. Uh, and we figured out how to do a lot of stuff in parallel. So what, what was the hardest thing in the first building of getting that, uh, getting that right? I think what we did was we tried to test it with the minimum amount of um, fanciness, right? So we built a bare bones app, uh, and, and actually our belief was that the how pretty the app was didn't really matter. I call it the cringe test. So if if you're going to try a lot of things and um, and and you expect to have a high failure rate, you can't polish everything to a high degree and then fail at a lot of things. So what we focus on is how do you get things out really fast? We've gotten out fast enough it's, if it's almost slightly embarrassing, because if it's if it's beyond that, then we've probably spent too much time, right? Um, and so, again, that's how, that's how we looked at our, our first test, which was let's get a, the most bare bones, you know, the, the technology term for that would be like minimum viable product. Yep. But, but I think we take it down a notch um, and, get, and get it. <laughs> What's below faster. minimum MVP? Ba- barely MVP. <laughs> um, 
sub MVP. And so, yeah, in three months, we were able to, you know, put together a prototype, get the, the restaurants we needed on board, and we didn't even publish the app in the app store. We we actually went and like manually like side loaded it onto people's phones, just stuck, went office by office, and and just did. Like you're just things. going up to strangers saying, "Do you want?" We went up to to tenants in our office. Uh, there were other tenants on different floors, and. Yeah, we told them what we were doing and asked them if they wanted to be part of our, our, our beta, and most of them agreed to, and we bought them a free lunch, and they tried it out. So, I mean, that's, this is like that's, so, that's, so that's old still, school. That's still what we do sales. today, in fact. And then you just <laughs> went building by building, block by block. Well, we went neighborhood. So then after that, we kind of scaled that, that to neighborhoods. Um, and, and what we realized was that um, the, unit, the unit of value for, for users was a neighborhood, not a city. Um, so if you could define if you could define neighborhoods in that way and get high coverage, um, that that's what made it useful, right? So Toronto gives you the density for that. That makes sense. I'm glad you mentioned Groupon because it brought back memories of peak Groupon. And in my neighborhood, there was a butcher shop, which I think around peak Groupon got a deal spread across the GTA, and there were literally lineups up the street yeah. and drove the place out of business. Yeah. They they just got clobbered. Yeah. Uh, so there was just this inability of the local merchant to cope with the demand surge yeah. that a platform like Groupon could uh, could deliver. How do you work with uh, the suppliers, so the coffee shops and restaurants in your case, so that they can think through and manage those demand surges that digital is so powerful at yeah. creating? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think one of the biggest differences between a marketplace company like ours and a software company that would sell um, software to a restaurant is we take ownership of the end experience. So what that means is when when a customer orders a coffee and goes to pick it up um, and something goes wrong, they can tell why it went wrong, whether that was on our side or the restaurant side or something in between. And so what that means is we have to take um, like end-to-end responsibility for that experience. So so we can't we can't draw this line and say okay this is where software ends and in-store operations begins. Um, so in fact, you know, there have been, there've been many times during um, high peak periods that our, our own staff have actually like literally got behind the counter and helped, um, and helped out in a line to, you know, to help throughput get, you know, um, um, get or keep up with, with demand sometimes. So I think we, we get pretty involved in restaurant operations and um, restaurant layout design for, for new restaurants, food court design. Um, as a lot of the, the buildings we work with are, are undergoing, you know, how do they design for the next 10 years kind of thing. I think what we learned was simply injecting orders into a restaurant is not enough. We have to figure out how to deliver a compelling experience to, to the user, you know, beyond that. So we don't really draw a boundary on how far we'll go. It, it, it's all the way from insights and data to um, streamlining operations. You know, it's, it's, it's not, I would say it's not stuff that we want to do, but, but I think for us, we have to do it to deliver the right experience to people. So you become like a Google Analytics for a lot of these restaurant operators. Yeah, a, a big part of, uh, you know, we've made a really big investment now in sort of, the, you know, becoming the operating system for um, the digital operating system for a restaurant. And so, um, you know, our new restaurant portal has, it, it exactly looks like a version of Google Analytics for a restaurant, like their customers, you know, how, how often they come, what is their spend, what is their lifetime value, just a lot of um, basic questions that most businesses would want answered. So I'm trying to think through your business model, how you make money off of this, because that all sounds fantastic and really expensive. You know, yeah. Putting a staffer yeah. behind a counter of someone else's shop is going to cost you, not the uh, restaurant operator. Yeah. How do you make money at this? Um, 
Well, we so we take we take a transaction fee. So again, we're we're very aligned with with our with our restaurant partners. Um, the idea is that Ritual generates incremental demand, um, and we help them fulfill that incremental demand, and we take a transaction fee for that demand. So um, if we don't drive any orders, they don't pay us any money. If we drive a lot of orders, they pay us a bunch of money. Um, not everything. I think one of the benefits you have of being small is. Um, we're not putting people behind counters at scale. And, um, and it's okay for it to happen a handful of times. Um, and what we learn from that is how to, how to systemize something so that, we, so that it isn't that painful for us to put, pe- you know, to put people behind counters. And so I think one, one of the things that we've learned is um, you know, there's, a, um, there's a saying that some, some, um, that's often said in tech, I think, which is you know, don't be afraid of doing things that don't scale. Right, um, and and so I think at our one of the benefits we have is because we're not operating at massive scale, um, we're not thousands of employees, you know, we're hundreds. Um, we can do these types of things um, because it's the right thing to do to you know to deliver the right experience to our customer, and then we we figure out how to make it better um, and how to not have that happen again. Right. So it's a fascinating line. Don't be afraid of doing things that don't scale. Sounds like uh, a bit antithetical to the Google way, where everything has to even Google did a lot. Scale. Well, I think even Google did a lot of things that didn't scale in, in the in the very beginning. And I think the whole point is that that's how you learn, because if if you have to build everything in a way that's scalable day one, you can never you move too slowly. You can't ever experiment. You can't fail at anything because it's going to take you a year to build it in a scalable way, as opposed to a week to just try that. Right. So. I think we're fans of just trying things out fast, um, failing at a lot of them, uh, but then when something works, then figure out how to scale. You're not the only one to have tried this. Why, why do you think you're succeeding where others have, have not? Um, I think a few reasons. Um, I think one of the things we're benefiting from, you know, Google wasn't the first search engine, they were the last search engine to, to, enter, to enter search. Um, we, we benefited greatly from everyone else's failures. Right, um, the the fifteen or twenty companies before us that have tried, including big ones that um, that have done similar things and and, and failed, um, we've we've been able to analyze why they failed, and I think we actually it's a it's actually a rare example um, of of uh, we haven't had very many sort of pivots, and um, we we had this thesis. From, from the very beginning that the reason why most things haven't worked in local was this lack of coverage, that everyone took a, a country view or a global view or a city view, and we were going to take a neighborhood view. Um, I think that's been the reason, and it's, a really, it's, a really, it's hard to execute, but a very simple insight. So before we talk about your global expansion, maybe you can give us a bit more insight on your thinking about what you've called the last frontier of digital, this mm-hmm. local, local economy. First of all, how do you define it? We're thinking restaurants, but you have a kind of a different uh, perspective of yeah, the local you know, economy. My, my sort of very simple, um, my simple framework of describing most most technology is just analog to digital. So if you think about um, if you think about most big technology companies like Google, um, Uber, you know, even Facebook, um, they've all they've all digitized something that was previously done in a very analog way. So if you think about information and how you all the information existed, it was just really difficult to access. Um, you know, advertising has existed offline forever. You know, Google digitized that part of it. Um, if you think about transportation, you could always, you know, hail a taxi. It was cumbersome and very analog. Um, and you know, with the ride-sharing apps, it's now a digital platform that connects 
So digital just connects people. It's either you know, people to businesses, people to people. Um, and uh, m- most of what these businesses do were, were, was possible before. They just make it more efficient. It's better. It's not anonymous, right? So we just believe digital is better. Um, and so the way you shop has been digitized, right, through Amazon and, and, and e-commerce overall. Um, but the way that you discover and interact with local restaurants is still sort of very analog. And prior to Ritual, the way that you bought a coffee, uh, the way that you, you bought lunch, you know, hadn't changed since the credit card. That was like the last major innovation, you know, 25 years ago. Um, and so we think, again, digital will fundamentally change how people um, discover local businesses, you know, the type of relationship they have with them. Um, uh, and, and that's what that's the kind of the transformation that's underway. What are the biggest challenges in getting local businesses to adopt this kind of thinking? Um, so I think they, we're, I think we're past the point right now. So five years ago, I think the biggest challenge was um, five years ago, local businesses saw this. It, it's, it's very analogous to e-commerce. So if you think about like retail, I think that's one way to forecast what's going to happen with local is to just look at what happened with retail. Um, 10 years prior, right? And, and so, you know, at, at first, why would you sell online? You'd do it because um, it provided a bit of incremental revenue, right? Um, and so that's why a lot of restaurants started partnering with their parties, you know, be it us or, or delivery companies. It was a way to generate 5 to 10% more revenue um, from, from the storefront that you had. But I think over time, what starts to happen is you realize that that is going to be your business, Right? So, so in retail now, it's, it's, it's swapped. It's walk-ins aren't, your, your primary business is online. And I think we're starting to see that transformation happen now. And I think the, you know, the, uh, the switch is going off in, um, in, in the heads of a lot of, a lot of local operators that, uh, in fact, for many restaurants today, if you add up um, Ritual and a, a lot of the other third parties that they, they partner with, it, it makes up more than 50% of their, their sales or revenue. So they already are digital-first businesses. The, their, their primary uh, source of revenue comes from digital, not walk-ins, right? And that's, that's a, a transformative shift. Um, but stores weren't designed for this, right? So I think, again, it's a, it's a similar uh, problem that retailers had. Um, they first tried to fulfill um, e-commerce orders through stores and then realized that that was just not the right way to do it. Um, and so I think there's, there's a lot of innovation that's happening right now. Um, things like dark kitchens, having dedicated fulfillment centers just for delivery, for example. Um, and just rethinking how to lay out a store. Um, you know, you know, even simple things. Um, if, if 70% of people have already ordered before they've come into a store, why do you need a menu board? Right? Um, and even what we need, if you look at what's happening at McDonald's now, if you look at the new store, store formats, when you walk in, there's one cashier, not, not, not six, right? Um, there's, there's more people focused on fulfillment. And in fact, when you walk into McDonald's now, the first thing you see is not the menu board. You see um, it's, it's traffic control. It's here are the orders waiting for, for prep and when they're going to be ready. Um, and so I think it's, um, it's small things like that, but it's also really large things like the fundamental layouts of stores have to change. Ray, you mentioned dark kitchens. Maybe you can ex- explain uh, what that is and what's, uh, what's going on in the restaurant world. Yes, I think... Um, Again, sort of analogous to, to retail, um, a lot of restaurants have realized that it, it doesn't make sense to pay, to, um, to use your highest rent stores to deliver. Um, if, you, so if, you have, if you have eight stores, for example, delivering out of all of them may not make sense. 
Instead, why not pick the lowest volume store that you have um, or open a new store? So in some cases, when you, when you look outside of downtown cores, um, they're actually placing um, a, a, dark, a dark kitchen is a kitchen that's not open to the public. It's, it's a delivery-only, uh, almost food fulfillment center. And, and typically what restaurants are trying to do now is put, put them in um, easy access areas. So think about like where multiple highways intersect. So it's like logistically easy to deliver out of them. Um, it's low rent. Um, so they could even be in like an industrial area um, because it, it's just food is being prepped there and, and, and being sent out. Um, so you're seeing all kinds of um, just real estate is changing in terms of how restaurants think about where to put, um, you know, where to put the restaurants. Another aspect that we're seeing is if 60 or 70 percent of your um, of your orders aren't coming from lock-ins. Why, why pay high rent to locate your restaurant on a busy street when the vast majority of people are actually discovering you digitally through an app? Um, all of a sudden, like location matters, but being on the busiest street doesn't. And, I, and, I, if you, and there's a lot of arbitrage there because sometimes being on the street next to it that doesn't get all the traffic can have a dramatic reduction in rent. Um, and so, so there's, there's all kinds of um, interesting just physical world implications of, of what... Um, of what digital will do. Are we going to have fewer restaurants ten years from now? I don't. I don't think so. Um, it, but I think what is a restaurant is is, is an interesting question. Uh, what we're starting to see happen also is, um, in some cases, there's actually virtual restaurants. So there's there's restaurants that um, exist. The um, it's one kitchen that's branding themselves as cooking six different types of food. And so um, in, in certain apps, um, we, don't, we, we don't have this on, on Ritual, but on other apps, like there are restaurants that don't exist anywhere but in the app. Um, so it would be like a sushi shop that also happens to sell, I mean, I don't know, like dumplings. But, but you can't buy it through the store. You can only buy it um, you know, through the app, and, 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 and it, uh, uh, maybe a delivery person will, will, will deliver that to you. Uh, so, it's it's hard to say what exactly is a restaurant. Is it is it um, is it a brand? And if so, I think there's going to be more brands than than exist today. Um, and if it's if it's the volume or and choice of food, um, no, I don't think that's going down. I think I think I think what we're seeing is a, a proliferation of um, you know. Um, and I actually think what's going to happen is we're going to help operators make better choices. So so again. Um, we can already predict um, a mismatch of, of demand and supply in an area. So, for example, um, there's not enough um, of a certain cuisine type in an area, and that's an, that's an interesting opportunity for either a, an entrepreneur, you know, a restaurant entrepreneur, to say, okay, this is the right. Um, there's a, there's an there's an opportunity to fulfill demand here, but it's also an opportunity for existing restaurants to maybe go into an adjacent um, cuisine type and expand their menu and say, let me also address that problem. Uh, so I think there's there's a lot of implications, um, and, and I think if anything, it's going to expand choice. So what you're talking about resonates probably for every consumer facing business, including financial services. The food business, though, has amazing spikes, peaks, and valleys of demand. Like we eat yeah. at midday. Uh, how do you foresee that changing, and how does technology help maybe even smooth that uh, demand even a little? I think, just just like you mentioned, the the supply demand mismatch in in the restaurant space is 
I think the, the, the most significant mismatch I've ever observed in, in any business, right? So um, restaurants pay for, um, you know, staffing, rent, equipment for, you know, whatever it is, 12, 18 hours of the day. Uh, and biologically, we can only eat for three hours of that day, right? So they have this, they have a really frustrating problem where um, no one is in their store um, 80% of the time. And then from 12 to 1, um, everyone is in their store and they have to actually turn away demand, right? Because uh, they actually can't fulfill, um, fulfill the orders. And so that's incredibly frustrating for them to, um, to not be able to capture all of that. Um, and so the, the answer is, you know, to somehow flatten the demand curve. And, and so I think there's, the answer in the end to all of these things, it's exactly what Uber had to do for transportation. You know, it's dynamic pricing. So um, you have to, and in fact, it already exists in the restaurant space. It's called happy hour, and we've all taken advantage of it. Um, so, uh, but, but just sort of um, turning that into something very meth- methodical. Uh, so in New York, for example, um, we offer small point incentives for, for people who order before 11 or 11.30 in our busiest spots. And, and the idea is to just like pull the demand curve out a bit, uh, so that you know the more orders that restaurants can fulfill from 11 to 11:30, um, it, it frees up their capacity, their peak capacity from 12 to 1 to serve even more orders. So, it, so in fact, it, in a weird way, it actually just benefits us because we can send them more orders if they have more fulfillment capacity. Right. You, you mentioned food courts, and I find them fascinating. They're 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 crazy, and what ritual and and other. Um, other companies like yours are doing is really kind of mucking with the design because they're not designed for the digital user. Yeah. You're working with real estate companies, the developers who design food courts. What do they need to change to make to take a bit of the craziness out of, uh, out of the zoo of yeah, food so, courts? So it's two or three um, pretty simple things that you'll see in all new food courts being built out from this point on, um, and, and even restaurants being built out from this point on. So I think um, the first one is... Um, the order and pickup windows are going to be much more separated than they are today because they're um, usually the flow was you go in, you order, then you go pick up. Uh, but now most people are just coming to pick up. Um, and so and, and, and in physical, um, in, even in non-food court environments, what you're seeing now is the reverse order. So as soon as you walk into a restaurant, you get pick up first, then the order station behind because most people don't need to actually order, right? Um, so in food courts, we're starting to see them get put on opposite sides as opposed to closer together. Um, the, the two biggest ones are um, most restaurants and most food courts aren't designed for 50 orders waiting for pickup, right? They, they just don't have enough um, shelving space for it. So what we're seeing is vertical shelving is, is typically the solution. So you'll see um, a lot of stores that we work with um, and a lot of food courts um, are starting to now put vertical shelving in and, and in fact even there are staffing changes because you don't you don't need as many cashiers. If you almost need like a concierge to help people find, you know, when there's fifty orders waiting for pickup, um, you might actually need to help people find their order. Um, so we start to see stores doing things like that. Last time I was uh, at a McDonald's in a local food court, I thought there was going to be a fist fight because there was this mob, there must have been fifty people dealing with the frustration that you talked about and one poor person who was sort of thrown over the counter to act as concierge, sort of sorting people to, out and yeah. trying to get bags and yeah. cups to, uh, to people. I mean, it's not designed for, as yeah. you said, the digital experience. Mm-hmm. But you used an interesting word earlier of fulfillment, which uh, people like Amazon also like to, uh, to use. But that's an interesting challenge for any service provider. What do you mean by, by it when you say fulfillment? Um, 
just making making an order and you know prepping a meal or an order or a coffee for for someone else and and what we find is that the the bottlenecks tend to be fulfillment capacity so if um, if we can send you know even if we could send eight thousand orders to to a restaurant they they if they actually can't fulfill more than one hundred and fifty of them um, an hour that starts to become the bottleneck so uh, one of our big focuses, and again, we're we're aligned with our our partners here. Um, it's how to help them, how to help them, because sending orders is one thing, but it's like you mentioned the the Groupon problem of you know if you've got a lineup of a thousand people, well, if you've got a virtual lineup um, of a thousand people that you can't fulfill, that's that's equally problematic. So, um, using using data and insights to help restaurants get operationally better to fulfill orders faster. Let's talk about your expansion plans. It's really exciting what uh, what you've got on the go in the U.S. and Australia. I talked about your uh, ambitions to three X uh, this uh, this year. First of all, what what took you so long to uh, to go global? Um, we we actually launched Chicago as our second city after Toronto, um, and until very recently, so so we went right away to uh, after Toronto to Chicago and New York. Um, but it took us it took us something like two years to do two cities, and I think what we, I think our. Sometimes when you want to go fast, I think what we learned was it's not about how fast you go from one to five; it's about how fast you can go from five to fifty, mm-hmm. and it's really counterintuitive because um, we see a lot of startups um, rush too quickly to launch their second or third city. And they think that's they think that the faster they get to number two and three, the faster they're going to get to city, city number 50. Um, the problem with, having, with going too early is um, you expand, it's hard to experiment with a bigger base of cities. So um, what we found was by, by keeping it very small. So in fact, we didn't even do Toronto. Um, for a year, we were in a single neighborhood. Uh, and it took us probably... Nine to twelve months to, to launch two uh, two neighborhoods, um, but by keeping it small, we were able to just iterate on product and process really fast. We were able to make a bunch of mistakes, um, learn from them quicker because we weren't supporting three cities at that time, right? Um, so it took us a very very long time to go from from one to two and two to three, but we'd gone through probably a hundred iterations at that point. Um, and so it was one of those like we 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 measured and we measured so many times that we we knew exactly how to run the playbook, and then after that we went from you know three to ten pretty fast, and, and now we'll go from ten to, to fifty or hundred even faster. What have you learned so far from the uh, from the UK and Australia experiences? That our playbook works really well. Um, <laughs> um, you know, it's 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 there. Those, there are there are what's 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 cool about it is there's differences in these markets, but at the end of the day, those differences are almost uh, they're almost absorbed through the local restaurants. Like the, the the restaurants and the makeup of a neighborhood reflects what people want, and so you know, Ritual is just a connector, right? We just we're just connecting people in the neighborhood with um, with with restaurants and coffee shops in the neighborhood, so. Um, so what we find is that the, the, you know, the mix of things and the cuisine types, um, they, they almost take care of themselves. So uh, oddly, oddly, not a lot is different for us. Um, you know, we, uh, the, the, the product and the, um, the value proposition resonates just as well and, and seems to translate very well in, in different countries. 
But r ritual is more, much more than a one-to-one -one experience. It's not just me as a consumer and a, and a single supplier and you're matching us. You've done some really interesting things. I'm thinking of piggyback, of almost grouping or pooling okay. consumers. Right. Tell us what you uh, were thinking when you, when you launched piggyback, what you learned through some of the challenges of, of getting it going and where you'd like to see it go in the next couple of years. Yeah. Um, so what we, what we believe is... Uh, again, uh, digital is better, right? And we like to think about what can we do on a digital platform that you, that wasn't possible without. Um, and, and again, it's the same analog to digital things. So if you think about what piggyback is, um, it's just a coffee run, right? And it's something that we observe that people do in the real world today, except you do it with two or three people that sit around you and you say, hey, I'm going to grab a coffee. Do you want something? Um, but through digital, we can enable this to happen across an entire floor or sometimes even across an entire company. Um, you know, we have um, just a lot, you know, uh, again, um, companies like RBC that have thousands of employees across floors that are able to share lunch and coffee pickups with each other. And so um, that's, that's something that's it's been a really powerful product for us. Um, we're able to, uh, you know, deliver value on all sides, right? For, for our end customers, it's sort of a free peer-to-peer -peer delivery network. Um, for for restaurants, because we are, we don't have to you know pay pay drivers, uh, they're getting restaurant like uh, sorry delivery like incrementality, without having to pay the really high fees that a lot of delivery companies charge. So um, we we like things like that that um, are positive on both sides of our network, and it really takes our our platform to, to unlock that. So we invest really heavily in things like that. Speaking of drivers, Uber Eats, why do you think they're not in this uh, in this space? Uh, they, they actually are. So they, they almost every, actually every single delivery company has pickup. Um, you know, DoorDash, Grubhub, Just Eat, uh, Postmates, and, and Uber Eats. So um, I, think that, I think that it's just not their main focus. Um, and, uh, you know, at the end of it all, you are what you focus on. And so they're, they're more logistics companies, and they're focused on how to deliver the, you know, the right at-the-door experience to a customer, how to, how to get food fast to you. Um, we're focused on an amazing in-store experience, right? Um, With so, a workplace audience, that's pretty much what you're yeah, and, and, concentrating and on. Exactly. So our even our demand curves are very different. Like delivery tends to be evenings and weekends. Uh, we tend to be the workday. Uh, so in some ways, it's, it's, I mean, us and delivery are actually quite... Um, they're complementary, you know, more so than competitive. So coffee is, again, it's a big focus for us. Tends not to be something that people get delivered. Um, not, not, to say that, not to say that delivery companies can't, can't do pickup well, um, but, it, but they'd have to expend the kind of effort that, that we are on the space. How much are you going to be relying on AI in the future to help us all understand what we're eating, what we should be eating? And how to uh, in a pretty big way. In a pretty big way. I mean, we have we're starting out. Uh, we are um, there's already AI at work within Ritual um, right now. So uh, certain types of recommendations and certain um, th there are things that are already powered by machine learning. Um, we have a. I think the the biggest advantage we have is we we have a really um, a really good data set. Right. We know um, unlike the credit card companies that that may know what restaurant you transacted um, on. We we know. A lot of specifics about what you eat, right? That that when you go to this type of restaurant, you want you like to have a coffee, and you like the specific sort of blueberry muffin from here. Um, and 
Um, but you, and, and that type of insight on exactly what, what you eat where can, uh, can, power, it can have some really powerful um, you know, recommendations um, that are super personalized to people. So we're thinking of other concentrations of mass concentrations of people around food and arenas, stadiums, mm-hmm. uh, spring to mind. How much of an opportunity is that, is that space for you? Yeah, we think we think that there's a there's a pretty big opportunity there. Um, you know, we're we're in early conversations with um, with some of those folks. Um, we we actually do. Speaking of corporate cafeterias, we actually power a lot of corporate cafeterias as well. I think that in a lot of uh, a lot of large banks, especially in New York, that have them. Um, have just so, so many of their employees are using Ritual anyway that rather than building another app for their cafeteria, they just put their cafeteria on Ritual. So we're starting to to make inroads into things like that: um, uh, corporate cafes, potentially airports. You know, um, stadiums make a lot of sense. So yeah, I think um, they're all areas that we're exploring. So your your, your expansion plans uh, ambitious uh, and, and impressive. Curious, what you think are the biggest near term barriers to uh, hitting the targets that you've laid out? I think uh, you know, for us, one of the a, a new challenge over the last six months is as we've grown our team now to, to hundreds of people, um, how we organize ourselves is starting to become really important. So when 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 a team is under 100 people, everyone just kind of knows what they need to do, um, and you don't really need that like management layer of how to organize and coordinate, and um, which is why you know one of the I mean it, it's it's amazing how how fast small companies like it can make a 10x difference, right? So sometimes, like, small companies of under 100 people can sometimes do what it takes teams of five to 800, um, just because the, the management overhead of coordinating people makes you move so slowly. So I think that's our biggest challenge, is how do we, as we scale uh, the number of people, how do we keep moving? I, I think one of our core reasons for success is how fast we could move, right? Um, how fast we can try things, how fast... It's like the faster we fail, the faster we learn, um, and, and the more things we can do, and, and that's been our, you know, our, our success, um, uh, one of the main reasons for our success. So it's important to not lose that as we scale, and that's probably the thing that keeps me up the most at night. So we, we talk a lot about failure through the Disruptor series, and you've used some interesting uh, terms around the velocity of yeah. failure. Yeah. I'm curious if you can expand a bit on that and share what you've learned about not just failure, but the velocity of failure. Yeah, um, you know, I think if you look at, at anything that, that's worked for us, and it took, me, it took me a long time to, to wrap my head around this, even through my career and my own, my own learning and growth, which was, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, I, I really viewed failure as, um, as failure. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I think it's taken me a long time to realize that um, everything that, that's worked has had a string of learnings, and you can call them learnings, you can call them failures, whatever you know, whatever you choose. Um, and uh, e- even with piggyback, um, we had to throw the product out three times. Like we we rebuilt it from the ground up like three times. So it, it, it failed. It, it failed until it worked, right? Um, and I think most things we did uh, or have done have, have just gone through you know tens, if not hundreds uh, of, of, of failure attempts. And so I think what, what, one of the things that we decided when, when building Ritual was that um, building a company or a team of people that doesn't make mistakes is a fool's errand. And what we should do instead is figure out how to detect failure quickly and, and fix it fast, right? So I think that's what we're good at. It's, it's 
um, identifying challenges, fixing it quickly, and building that type of resilience as a, you know, as a company. Um, I also think that um, words are, sometimes uh, managers and leaders can give very contradictory messages. You can't say that it's okay to fail and then punish people for it. Um, you know, so we celebrate these types of learnings. So we, How do you do when, that? Well, when, when, so I think the difference between learning and failure is um, do you share the learning or not, right? So if you fail at something and you try to bury it, that actually is a failure <laughs> um, because no one's learned from that. Uh, we do postmortems um, on, on everything that goes wrong. And, and it's, it's, it's distributed really widely. It's like even if we have a, an engineering infrastructure failure, there's a postmortem on like what happened, what was the learning, what have we fixed, you know, what are we going to do differently next time. Um, and by making it not a taboo topic and people not feeling like that's going to be held. In fact, if you shared, if you publicly broadcast your learning, um, you'll be rewarded for that. Um, you know, I think that's, that, that's one way. Uh, but, but I think there's just a, a series, like, you can't say that you, you have high tolerance for failure, but then also expect um, people to spend a lot of time um, trying stuff out. So this was my, my point on, like, the cringe test. Like, mm. you, you can't put a lot of pressure for, on, on teams to, say, deliver things faster. Um, but instead, the right argument that we have is, what can we cut? Right? Um, do, does it really need to be that polished? Um, can we can we cheat and just fake this or or, or do that right? Um, so I think we we really focus on um, removing things that aren't, aren't necessary to try things quickly. Um, and and I assume that the first time you do everything is going to fail, right? Uh, so then the point is, if it's going to fail, then why why hyper polish it? Just just do it as simply as you can to get a learning or a data point, and, and we'll go from there. It's an amazing story. What uh, what you're building and what you what uh, what lies ahead. I was curious what you've learned about yourself as a leader through uh, through this. Um, I think that growth, just learning to grow, is a skill set in in itself. Um, and I think that when I when I look at all of the people at our company that have been successful over the last four years, because we've gone, you know, I think our our team has quadrupled in the last eighteen months, and um, and you know we've gone from one city to four countries. Um, I think what I found is is people that um, are able to put their ego aside and admit that in spite of being somewhat successful in certain things that at the end of the day you probably know very little and a lot of what you know is probably wrong and being open to um, just having a beginner's mind on it and I think I think that's what we try to do is that we the reason why we keep getting better is we assume that we still don't have it figured out you know and that's I think that's a really hard balance it's like success makes you not lose that mindset. Um, so I think that's something that we try very hard to preserve, um, which is we don't know everything. And even if it worked, it could be better. Um, so I think that's, that's something that, and even with my own leadership style and management, it's like sometimes things are working, but um, it could be a lot better. And we just try to keep an open mind to learning and growth. It's a great, uh, great message to, to leave us with. Ray, thank you so much for being part of, uh, part of RBC Disruptors. Yeah, no, thank you, John. It was a uh, pleasure Thanks for downloading RBC Disruptors. Our show this week was produced and edited by VocalFry Studios. You can reach us at RBC Disruptors at rbc.com and join the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag RBC Disruptors. Thanks so much for listening.